Welcome to the Analytical Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Yang. I wanted to create a podcast that explored how people use their right brain and left brain. Too often, we are defined by our jobs as analytical or creative. However, when I look around, I see that I'm surrounded by people who blend these two aspects of themselves to create meaningful lives. On this podcast, I will be interviewing people who use their right brain and left brain in fun ways, and I will also be sharing tools to help you develop both. Join me as we explore how to use our analytical and creative sides to bring more dimension to our lives. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to bring you today's episode with my former manager, Ryan Glaze. In pharmacy school, I was an intern at a local community pharmacy, and Ryan was my manager. Students and customers loved Ryan for his humor and strong relational skills, which resulted in excellent customer service. In this interview, Ryan and I talk about how he uses analytical and creative skills to build businesses to serve people. First, a photography business for special needs kids, which is an incredibly powerful story, and also an investment business, all while continuing his day job as a pharmacist. Listen to how Ryan takes action on learning new things and building them into thriving businesses. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Hello, Alan. It's good to be here with you. Uh, Ryan, we know each other because back when I was in pharmacy school, um, I heard that you were the best manager in town. And so when I was looking for an internship at a local pharmacy, your name came top of the list and with high recommendations. So then you were my manager for a couple years. And little did you know that you were actually running the pharmacy <laughs> and because you had superior skills all around from <laughs> clinical skills to people skills to management skills. So, But that's the mark of a good manager is when he knows he's outclassed, he just lets that outclassed person do their thing. So that's what I had you do. That seems to be a theme or a philosophy you may have, like just, and I would love to talk more about what you look for and what you hire for, for people on your team. Sure. That'd be great. So Ryan, you know, when I was working with you, I really noticed that, you know, being in pharmacy, we have to be very analytical. And of course that comes with a science background, but you also had these phenomenal people skills and knowing that you've had such a wide variety of interests, I really saw you flex that creative side. And that's what drew my attention and why I wanted to actually talk with you and explore some of those pieces. So let's go back and maybe you can take us through some of your career path and we'll start from you know how far ever you want to go back and walk us through what you've done for work. So as you mentioned, when you and I connected, I was managing a pharmacy and doing really well with that. It was a a quite enjoyable job. And the interesting thing is all along the way of that particular employer, you're learning customer service, like superior customer service, and you're learning different things along the way that are natural to that job. And a lot of those skills can be applied outside of that arena. So part of the career path for me was very variable. And it sort of centered around the theme of looking for opportunity and looking for a need. And if there's something that I could fulfill in that Mm -hmm. need that seemed natural to or appealing to me, Mm -hmm. then it was something that I kind of went after. And one of those early things was photography. Mm -hmm. So photography, in one sense, isn't related to pharmacy, but 
delivering a great customer experience mm-hmm. is common to both sides. So this journey started for me when my son, who has a special needs, was in a special needs preschool. And we had a simple assignment of just turning in a photograph. This would have been before digital cameras. Mm-hmm. So we turn in a, a photograph that was supposed to be turned into a Christmas bulb. You know, they were going to make an arts and craft thing mm-hmm. in this preschool. And the teacher, she goes, well, this is a really great picture. She goes, what kind of film did you use? You know, that was what we said back then. What kind of film did you use? I said, I I don't know. Whatever was on the checkout stand as you're going through the grocery line, you know, you pick one up. What kind of camera is this? I'm like, I don't know. It's some sort of point and shoot thing. It cost me 35 bucks. And, you know, and so not knowing, not having any previous training, I just gave her the picture and she says, well, why don't you, would you mind coming in and shooting photos of the class during a Valentine's day party? Now, again, this would have been the next holiday after Mm -hmm. Christmas. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I said, in fact, why don't we just make this cool? And this goes back to the customer service thing. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just give all the parents an eight by 10, but let's not tell them. Let's just let it be a surprise. Uh So, Uh so we did that and having no idea that this was going to be a business, we just, you know, you just did it. And so we did that. And for after Valentine's day, one of the parents, you know, we all could see each other in the hallway and she pulls me aside and she goes, well, how much do you charge to, and I said, well, I don't, I, I, I just took pictures. <laughs> and so she's like, no, no, I, I want you to take pictures. So I ended up you know, taking pictures of their kid for free, really. Cause I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but you know, to make the point kind of connect here to what your question is, is You know, there is a heavy analytical portion to Mm -hmm. pharmacy and there's a heavy analytical portion to photography, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the lighting, the, the aperture openings, the, how do you use your flash and those kinds of things. And at the same time, there is a creative side to this. There's a creativeness now, nowadays with the software, there's creativeness with how you compose people. There's creativeness in how you interact with people. Because a lot of people don't like the camera. Mm. Even people who are photogenic don't like the camera. So there's a there's a, an art, if you will, to that interaction and making them comfortable. And it doesn't necessarily start in person. It can start with a phone call. It can start with, you know, how do you make them comfortable in that phone call? How do you make them comfortable in an email? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get them to buy into you in those very early moments so that you end up capturing a great photograph so that you end up getting them to understand their medication? The mm-hmm. parallel there is, is mm-hmm. you know, that, that people, that soft skill, so to speak, is how do you get people very comfortable very quickly while still maintaining your analytics and at the same time having that emotional intelligence to navigate the interaction for optimal experience. Yeah. I mean, there's so many aspects of that story that you talked about. One is doing it and putting yourself or just taking opportunities as they come. And then also, you know, just exploring and letting your curiosity guide you. But then just going back to the emotional connection, and you brought up emotional intelligence, which I think people are are familiar with, but was this something that was learned or did it come naturally for you? It's an interesting question and a fair question. I think that in childhood, it seemed to ebb and flow. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there were environments where I was very comfortable. Oftentimes, my grade card said "talks out of turn." You know, <laughs> those kinds of things. And and then you know, there's there's obviously there's times when you maybe lack the confidence to to speak up in a group. And but over time, I think that with enough interactions and with enough uncomfortableness, you become comfortable. Mm-hmm. In a lot of those emotional situations, mm-hmm. I th- even think of public speaking. I was fortunate enough to serve as I had an office when I was in you know, an office position when I was in the College of Pharmacy. And mm-hmm. in that position, I, I had to give announcements and it was nerve wracking to start with. But you do it enough. And all of a sudden, you know, I actually was teaching at Ohio State as an undergrad. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not about my ability. It's just about taking that situation mm-hmm. that you know, it ebbs and flows. You're you're uncomfortable for a while until you get used to doing things and then it becomes comfortable. And so part of that emotional intelligence, it, some of it was natural. Some of it was psychologically like defeating. And then you overcome that. To answer that question, I had a, I had a, well, he's still my friend, but mm-hmm. growing up, I had two great friends who just didn't have a problem with this emotional you know, ability to speak up, ability to make friends. And so I learned a ton from those two best friends that I had in high school of just being social. So that was something that I did have to pick up on along with blending, something that was somewhat natural, but ebbed and flowed here and there. Yeah, that's what you just said was it really speaks to how you can learn from people around you. And it sounds like there's so many things that we can learn, but we have to put ourselves in maybe uncomfortable situations at first. And with some dedication and commitment, you can overcome like really any obstacle, it sounds like. Yeah, especially in, in those kinds of things that are largely mental. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think that, you know, I talk about that with my kids a lot is, you know, you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. I know that mm-hmm. that phrase is out there. But to a kid, they need to hear that. They need to step out. They need to know that there is, not just a kid, but all of us, we need to know that there's safe spaces so that you can mess up. You mm-hmm. know, okay, so you tried it, you messed up, big deal. Get back up there and let's try it again. Just because you bomb something doesn't mean that dictates how things are going to go. Just because you may not think you're a great public speaker doesn't mean you can't be a great public speaker. Just because you may grab a camera and shoot a picture horribly doesn't mean that you can't learn to shoot it in a great way. Just because you have and you're handling a conflict at work and you didn't handle it well because of those emotional intelligent things, well, you put that in your your experience cap and you do better the next time. That all factors into that emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely something that it's taken me longer to learn, I think. I, I was definitely more on the shy side and it's just a slower process for me, I think. But I I think that is definitely something essential to continue growing as a person and learning. Yeah, I I agree, Ellen. And I I think a lot of the thoughts that go through my head thinking about this is, you know, we all have a duty, if you will, as as human beings. And and I'll I'll leave that kind of broadly, but we're all Mm -hmm. here for a purpose. And and certainly we have group purposes and individual purposes. And all of these purposes, I shouldn't say all of them, the vast majority of anything that anyone does purpose-related ultimately has to do with another human being. Mm-hmm. So you can say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a farmer. I don't want to talk to anybody. 
okay, where's that farming stuff going? It's probably going to a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, I, well, no, I just want to feed the horses. Why? So, the, I mean, the horses ultimately are probably going to be ridden by or used to plow fields. So it, it's just interesting that all of us actually connect to another human. And once we get our head wrapped around that life is bigger than me and life is bigger than you, mm-hmm. then I think when, you, when we have that mindset, it helps us to get out of our shell and say, it's not all about me. So I don't have to be introverted. I don't have to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. because there's a greater mission at hand here. And for some that can be practical, other others, it can be spiritual. Obviously you can have both. So just to know that oftentimes forces you to proceed with these creative and emotional progress in one's life if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so well said. And and I love how you've just reinforced that and just really painted a bigger picture of, you know, everything that we do comes in contact with another human being. And that connection is so important. So let's go back to photography because we were, you were talking about how you started and we can use this as an example of how you go about learning. I love the fact that you actually went to the class and just, you know, thought about what are the other things you can do with the situation. Can you speak to, you know, maybe how you've, how you navigated and learned through your photography business? I think it's kind of a a little bit of a fun story. So once I decided that I would take a little bit of a stab at this, I went and bought it a camera and we have to remember like back then, so digital was just, just occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bought an early point and shoot digital camera to try to learn a little bit more about it. And my uh, pharmacist partner, as well as another pharmacist to two different families, allowed me to photograph their family for free. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually gave them lifetime photos. Like you just, whenever your family wants photos, just, just let me know and mm-hmm. I'll come photograph your family for free because you're helping me along the learning curve. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, my son had an aide who was getting married. Actually, it was an earlier story. I'll <laughs> save that story for a moment. But the, the very first person, so I was actually playing around with this, with the camera, with my kids, you know, taking pictures and I, I'm diverging from the original story. Sorry. That's okay. No, and, no please do. And so please. I take these uh, these photos into where my son is, is going through a, a swim therapy session. Uh-huh. And there's another aide there who has a, a couple of twin girls that she's watching. And she's looking at the pictures and she's like, do you want to photograph my wedding? And I said, no, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. Am I going to mess up your wedding? She's like, oh, that'd be really easy. So I ended up saying no to her. Let's pause on that story yeah. for a moment. We'll come back to that. So anyway, I'm photographing for free. And then my, my son's aide, I ended up photographing her wedding for free with a point and shoot digital camera. Oh my there's goodness. no lenses. There's no, and I thought the pictures were horrible and she loved them. And I'm just like, this is a bomb. Thank God it was free. And then there's uh, eventually there's someone who, a family member who got me to photograph a wedding for 500 bucks. Before I went and did that, I said, well, I got to take some kind of a class. And so I took, I took a wedding photography class and online and it was, uh, I don't know, it was four or five hours, six hours and it's interactive. So you're going to take pictures and you're going to get feedback and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I also, to prepare for this wedding, I went online and I looked at all different kinds of wedding 
photography websites. Mm -hmm. And I just started emailing the websites and just saying, hey, I really like this photo. Like, how did you do it? Can you tell me how you did it? Mm. And most of the time, those photographers would write me back and say, like, oh, yeah, I did this. I shot it at this aperture. I had this, whatever. You know, they would give me the, the specs or the details of it. And so there was that portion of that curiosity of like saying, I like this photo. And mm-hmm. then I would go through photos and I would say, I like it. Why do I like it? Or mm. I don't like this photo. Why don't I like it? And try to identify the things about the photo that I liked and disliked. Why the, It could have been the way in which it was shot. It could have been the editing. Mm-hmm. could have been the lighting. could have been the posing. All these different things. So I just sort of immersed myself in my free time, which wasn't much. But I immersed it and just started to get out there and have some success and have some failures and have some success and have some failures. And where things were failures, you know, there was a plan to, <laughs> to justify. In other words, like I, I would oftentimes in the early days set the precedence of like, hey, I'm new to this. So if this mm-hmm. doesn't work out, you're not paying me any money. Mm-hmm. Um, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And some of those people became lifers, if you will. We don't, mm-hmm. we stopped after 18 years, but some of those people came back year after year to, to have their family photographs done. So there was a lot of learning on my part, a lot of like just looking and perusing and emailing and probing and reading to try to just get this thing figured out. And the beauty of digital photography is you can go out and experiment and you have an immediate answer. Mm-hmm. Whereas film, you had to wait for Meyer or somebody to, to bring you get to get yes. your photos in a day or three. And, and you had to remember how you shot it. But with digital, it was like, boom, right there it was. Oh, you know, I didn't have enough light. Let me make this adjustment. Oh, wow. And so you could have those immediate answers. So the learning curve was very, very quick. And so I took advantage of that. That's kind of how some of the early birthings, if you will, started. And it, it really, really picked up steam. The marketing aspect I had to learn. And I had some some advisors in the form of other people I worked with at the pharmacy and to say, how much, how much do you guys think I should charge? And I remember somebody saying, you need to double it. And I said, mm-hmm. you're kidding me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did. And they said, double it for the next 10 weddings, for instance. And I did. And I filled up in like two months, I filled up the next 10 weddings. And I said, now what should I do? And they said, double it again. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> so I did. I went from 500 to 1100 to 2200 within a year I was charging 2200 and we got to a point where we kind of leveled off in the $3,000 range back when we were finishing photography. And we only, and we, I was doing close to 20 weddings a year and I cut back to seven weddings a year because we just had too many, too many irons in the fire yeah, uh, with some other things going on. So anyhow, I know that's probably more than the question you asked. No, that, no that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And so, you know, when I listen to those, I love it because it's like you started off with just questions and the next step that showed up and, you know, you were teaching yourself and kind of feeling your way through that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's not like you felt like you needed to charge right away. You were actually just open to learning and doing it for free. So there wasn't that pressure of like, I have to make this into something. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. It was never meant to be a full-time job. It, mm-hmm. it really was, there was a need and we really haven't even got to the, to the bigger need that was at hand. And I can talk about that. Oh, yeah. But let's the, talk about that. The, um, <laughs> but it really was just a matter of like, Hey, there's, I like this, there's opportunity. It mm-hmm. sort of just happened. Oh, I can mm-hmm. make some money. 
there was a need for money, believe it or not, with, and I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail, but there's, there was a, a need for, you know, my son has autism. And mm-hmm. at that time, autism was not a covered diagnosis under, mm-hmm. under medical plans. Mm-hmm. So, and we didn't understand it very well. This mm-hmm. is back in the 1990s. The cost of his treatment was extremely expensive and it was all out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no insurance coverage. So all the speech therapies and occupational therapies and doctor visits and so forth, because it was not a covered diagnosis, I think we put well over $300,000 out of our own pocket oh, wow. uh, during the first nine years. of and, and then it became a covered diagnosis and things were easier. But, mm-hmm. you know, either way, I <laughs> had to find some ways to make money. Right, right, <laughs> So right. Uh, photography served that purpose. But the beauty of all of this, again, is I think at the end of someone's time here on earth, if they, if they look at where they started and where they ended up, it's never a straight line. Mm-hmm. You're, you're always pinging from left to right, up and down. And where you end up and you look back is never the path that anyone would have quite predicted. There may be some things we might have guessed. But you, you don't really end up where you think you're going to end up. It could be good, bad, or different. It just doesn't matter. But along this way of having my special needs son, it became very apparent to me with autism, they're very, very difficult kids to photograph. Mm. They don't look at the camera. They mm-hmm. don't smile. Odds are. I mean, they do, right, but right. to capture it on a camera is very difficult. So I had a perfect opportunity to perfect it because my son didn't look at the camera. Mm-hmm. And he's still, he's in his twenties now and he still struggles to like smile in a natural way. Mm. I figured out ways to get him to smile. And so he's going to school. No one's taking pictures. So why don't I take pictures for his school? And maybe we make a yearbook, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we just see what happens. And so I did that for a year and tried all these different ways to photograph the kids. And some of them worked, a lot of them didn't, but it was training ground because no one else was doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for a couple of years and then I had to, to pull away for some life situations that were going on where I didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. And then once those life situations had completed their course, I went back into it and I photographed that particular school and a couple of others and it was working. So I, mm-hmm. I narrowed things down to like, this works 90% of the time with kids. Mm. And those 10% of kids that it didn't work with, I had developed a couple of other techniques. And we got to the point where we were pretty close to 100% success rate on getting a kid to smile and to get them to look at the camera at the same time. It sometimes would take 10 minutes, but parents didn't have pictures of their kids Mm -hmm. smiling and looking at the camera. So that Mm -hmm. was one. And oftentimes, now a lot of parents wanted their kids to maybe look like a typical kid. Other parents didn't want that. But either way, at least we had the option of creating something to where they looked like. When you look at them, you see the soul in their eyes Mm -hmm. because they're looking at the camera and they're Mm -hmm. smiling. So you know it's in there somewhere. It's locked up a lot of times, Mm -hmm. but it's in there. Mm -hmm. So through trial and error, creativeness, figuring this out, working with other people to help me get this accomplished, we figured out how to get these kids to smile and look at the camera. So the next thing you know, 
Now we're in central Ohio. We were mm-hmm. photographing every single special needs autism school with the exception of one. Wow. Um, we were doing, I don't know how many, it was maybe 20 different schools. Yeah. And we were helping them with their yearbooks. We were getting them done. I mean, oftentimes the parents would write us and say, my autism son or daughter's photo was better than my other son's photo who goes to a regular school. Um, so, you know, it speaks of the quality of your work. <laughs> well, and it was the diligence to, to see that there were things that, that needed to be done because, you know, sometimes the, the only way these kids would smile is if they were eating a Cheetos. Yeah. So you got to take that Cheetos out of their teeth. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, yeah. they got chocolate on their face. So you've got to digitally edit that chocolate out. And that's not going to happen in a regular school. Mm-hmm. Or the kid was crying, but you sang the right song to get their smile, but you got to take the tear away. So you got to mm-hmm. digitally ed- edit that tear. So there was a little bit of finagling digitally, but the smiles were all natural. So we, we did everything in the book to get them to smile. We would play Elmo songs. We would, I would sing, gosh, I don't know, Yankee Doodle or something. There, whatever they needed. And I would act goofy. I would throw them up in the air. I would get them on my belly and do different things like make them bounce. Or, you know, I would have to get behind them and hold their arms down and tickle them at the same time to get them to laugh a little bit. And then, and then I have to turn their head towards the camera and drop my hands real quick while my wife would take the picture. So we did all kinds of things to, to get this to work. And along the way, they were, you know, when you work with, you know, some special needs kids, you never know what you're going to get. So occasionally you get bit, occasionally you get punched in the face. Usually, you know, those kids, you know, again, we did that for Gosh, I'd say 12 to 14 years we were photographing. So you get to know these kids and it's a very, very gratifying thing. And along the way, you're making money and you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're charging reasonable rates and the parents are loving it. And inevitably, those kids end up becoming seniors and they, they need senior photos. Mm-hmm. And then you're photographing the families. So this ends up being kind of a, a money making machine. But at the same time, you're serving the community and providing something that no one else was doing. Yeah, that's why I definitely hear like, I mean, there was, it seems you hit upon a very, a pain point that wasn't being met, right? And something that was meaning very meaningful for parents and families. And you found a way, I mean, even in the photo sessions that you had, it sounded like you had to really bring all your creative energy into finding out and exploring what would work. In the same drive, when we talked earlier about, you know, public speaking and the things that you have to do, like you have a mission, mm-hmm. like we're, we're here for a purpose. We should fulfill that purpose. That purpose may shift from time to time yeah. and it may be something on one day and completely different the next, but you know, just like you have to give information in an announcement publicly at the same time, like you become mission minded when you have that camera in your hand, like mm-hmm. those parents deserve to have a great photo of their kids. And these guys deserve a great yearbook. And that becomes very gratifying to me and Mm -hmm. to my wife. I get choked up thinking about it, but oftentimes we were an emotional wreck Hmm. following it because it's like, it's so, you know, you did something that day, you know, you made an impact because those parents are going to get those pictures back. And most of them would Mm -hmm. just, would just be overwhelmed with seeing their kid and that sliver that they get to see every once in a while, we captured it on print for them. So it's very, very gratifying and, and it fuels you to go out and do it again for the next school or year after year to go to the same schools to get that impact that you have on other people. Yeah, that sounds so powerful. Talking about true impact, I can definitely feel that. Yeah. 
and and photography is just one one little endeavor. <laughs> yes. We did lots of other creative things, and and I I know I'll let you lead the, the questions. Well, yeah, but I mean, where where else have you seen this pop up? This may serve initially again as a um, kind of a compartmentalized thinking mm-hmm. as opposed to a creative thinking, but. Being in the financial state that we were in Mm. with my son's medical debt, I began to just try to figure out investments. Mm. So I really were was looking, and this is this was really before I guess is before I had a computer. So we're still talking late nineties at this point, and I started to just pick up certain patterns that Mm -hmm. I was seeing with investments, and so I started to just. Uh, again, compartmentalize. I started to just graph things out, chart things out, pen and paper, different scenarios. And I played a variety of scenarios out over a six-month period and I kept it all on paper. Hmm. So in other words, like if I have a 401k, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I did that? What would happen if I did this? And I did all these hypothetical things while just kind of parking my money and leaving it, not doing anything in reality. I was just sort of like playing these out on paper. On paper, right. Mm -hmm. And so I just began to notice certain patterns. And so I said, well, I'm going to try it. And so I tried this pattern. And at the end of the year, I beat the best performing investment with it. So you have, let's say you have, I don't know, let's say you have 10 different things in your 401k. And let's say the best one did 18%. So if you stuck it in that particular one and left it in there, it did 18%. Mm -hmm. Well, mine was beating on that first year, it beat it by 10%. So I'm like, I just did 28% by looking at these patterns that I had had noticed. And I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try it again the next year. And I did it again. I, I beat it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is this two years in a row. It's, it's like, it's okay. It's, it's good. This is like, I don't know if this is going to continue. And then my technician at work, <laughs> by the way, we're talking, this is still before computers. So I'm having to like call in. Oh my goodness. I had to like get on the phone and find out what these different things were doing yeah. during the day. There was no smartphone. So I'm, I'm calling a, a, an automated brokerage system to figure out how different funds were doing throughout the day to figure out what the pattern of that day was. So anyway, then I, my technician picks up on it and she's like, well, can you do it for me? I'm like, yeah, do it for you. And then the pharmacist wants to get on board and we knocked that out of the park. So come 2008, you know, we were up 36%. Everybody else was down 36%. So right. we beat the market by 72% that year. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden my store manager says, well, can you do it for me? And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, this is getting to be too big. I think I was already made. Oh, the, the security, head of security was wanting me to do it. So it was getting to be kind of too big. And so to make this portion of the story shorter is I ended up forming a business as an uh-huh. investment advisor. So the creative portion, however, came in with not so much that because that was a lot of like analytical. Yeah. Things. The creative portion came in that when I became an investment advisor, it really became about reading people and getting human beings out of their own way. Mm. Um, So that whole investment, I started off with me noticing patterns, then Mm -hmm. me doing well, then other people having that desire to see their portfolio grow. Mm -hmm. And that grew into like, I'll word this very carefully. Some people need to be told certain things because they they need to be pushed out of the nest 
mm-hmm. in some ways is, is mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. Yep. And, and that goes on, two, on multiple different ways. Some people need to be to need to say, hey, you need to work more. Other people need to be told, hey, you need to, <laughs> to save more. Yep. Um, other people need to say, you need to retire. I look at the variety of clients who I got to work with and the creative aspect came from you need to really read people and you need to help them to figure out their own stuff because their their own biases are getting in the way. Mm-hmm. I remember a client who, I'll leave some numbers out. He had enough in the bank mm-hmm. and he had mm-hmm. two paid off houses. He was talking to me about his job, which he hated. And it was springtime. And he thought that if he could stay on the end of this year, there was a chance. And this is a person who also had a somewhat terminal disease. It was Mm -hmm. under control, but it was labeled as terminal. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to figure out that if he stays on long enough, he'll get an extra $50,000 severance package. And Mm -hmm. I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, okay, plenty of money in the bank. Mm -hmm. You're at a job you hate and you're trying to stay on for $50,000. But he couldn't see it. And so we talked and we figured out that what was really bothering him is he didn't know what he would do with his time. Mm. So even though he knew the end of life was within, I don't know, five, 10 years, probably, it was the idea that he didn't know what to do with his time. So we just form a strategy. And I said, okay, so how much vacation do you have? And he's like, I got a lot of vacation. I said, I want you to take a day off every single week for the rest of the year. Yeah. And then you'll have your severance package. He's like, that's a great idea. So he started that and we met a month later or so. And I said, well, how's it going? He goes, I have so much to do at home. I had no idea. He goes, so I went ahead and went part time. (laughs) 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 And so the, the end of the story was sometimes we need to be pushed a little bit. All of us do. Doing triathlons, I had this phrase of like, don't let Ryan get in the way of Ryan. Yeah. Sometimes like we're our own worst enemies of either not thinking things through or trying to hold on to our own biases. And so this guy just needed to be pushed and be like, no, you know what? You got vacation. Take it. Take a day. So he did. And it just one thing led to another. And once that avenue began to open up. So that's the creative spot is, we, mm-hmm. is, is you know, it wasn't about stocks and bonds and tax savings. And those are all elements. And those can be done in a creative way, too. But in this case, and in many cases, it was, you know what, you're your own worst enemy. You don't need to work, stop working. And for other people, it was like, no, you don't need a new pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, mama, I know mama always needs a new pair of shoes, right? <laughs> but I think that's where the creative aspect came in was something like investment advising. What you touch upon is, is so important because, well, one, teaching yourself the financial part of it, right? There's pattern recognition. And then again, you bring in the doing and actually trying things out and with maybe no risk at the beginning and then increasing that based on just seeing where it led. But this last part, it sounds like there's a shift to more mindset, like using money because that can bring out certain things that we're not aware of. And also to bring in that mindset component. And also it sounded like you were just helping people sift through what was their priorities and what was really meaningful and what mattered to them. Yeah. And that's exactly what what that job ended up being mm-hmm. is bringing authenticity in a way that people could trust you. And mm-hmm. it wasn't about them trusting me with their money. Right. It was about them trusting me with their facts and their emotions, not in a counselor kind of a way, but in a like, hey, I can see this. 
you know, and I, I can think of many, many examples where a husband, you know, is one, a husband and wife were really struggling with what to do financially because this, she's, they want to spend more time together. And, you know, this guy's got a really expensive old car in his garage that he has insurance on. And I said, well, what are you doing with it? He's like, oh, I love that car. I said, well, how often do you drive it? <laughs> Twice a year. I'm like, how much is it worth? They were trying to get her to stop working. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, can you sell it? I can't sell that. Why is that? <sighs> yeah, it's just, it's just nostalgia. I'm like, if that's the only thing keeping you from your goal, I said, I know that we can work on other things and we can try to figure out another way. But like that car, if that was the only thing standing in your way between this goal of having your wife stop work because of her illness and her not stopping it and you drive it twice a year, like, what are we working with here? Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think you can see the light when I'm going over it in 40 seconds, it sounds very like obvious, but it's not so obvious it's when, you, when you're in it. Yeah. You know, totally. there, there's obviously there's an emotional attachment for him to both things, his wife and the car. I'm sure there's ways that we, I mean, we talked about ways to, to get around it, but ultimately it was like, this is the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a car. And so we have that conversation with emotional intelligence because you don't want to make anybody feel stupid for like, Hey, like I get it. Yeah. And ultimately it's their decision and, but maybe bringing up or just bring, raising the questions, right. Just to help them reflect on that. And that's exactly what it is. You know, oftentimes I don't have to make the decision. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, have we thought about this? And other times they do. Sometimes you have to know when to strike, so to speak, Mm-hmm. Um, where you're just like, hey, no, you need an, a, you know, and I, and I think of another, I'm going on and on thinking of all these examples. You know, a guy was trying to figure out if he had some money, I think it was around 21,000. He's like, you know, I, I don't know if I should buy this piece of equipment or if I should invest it with you, Ryan. Should I invest this money with you or should I buy this piece of equipment? Uh-huh. Smart guy, real estate guy. And at the same time, he had a great um, business working on houses, doing a particular task with houses working with drains and so forth. And he says, I'm just not sure what I should do. And I said, well, hypothetically, I don't want to make anybody sound bad, but this is a guy who probably had cash stashed in fair, a fair amount of cash stashed somewhere, not in a bank. Mm-hmm. I mean, under a, a wood pile or, you know, yeah, I don't know, yeah. you know, um, super guy, but I could just see that this was probably the case. So he has this 21,000. He's not sure what he wants to do with it because he doesn't want to part with it. Yeah. And so I said, well, how long would it take for you to make that money back? He says, I don't know, probably two months. So you can take that 21,000 and you can make 21,000 back in two months if you have this piece of equipment. He said, yeah. I said, well, I can't do that for you. So yeah. buy the equipment. And he did. <laughs> you know? So, um, and so. There was a lot of those kinds of conversations. Again, some of those aren't so creative, but the handling of the conversation, I think, is the is the creative part that we yeah, have. Yeah, no, about. and I think it's also trying to figure out the right. How do you lead someone to a plan, right? And and so there's so many things in your head that you'd probably need to like figure help help this person with, right? Right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed hearing through your interests and just the process of letting your curiosity guide you as well as how you just learn. That's been so inspirational and really inspiring for me. Thank you, Ellen. It's um, it's actually been great to connect with you on this podcast, knowing that so many years ago it was a student preceptor uh, <laughs> connection, and now we're well, we've been peers for for many many years. But it's been great to join you on your show today. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, it's funny how you know you never know where the road will take you and how you connect and reconnect with people in your life. That is true. Yeah, it is a it is a windy pathway, but it's enjoyable <laughs> on the way. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Alan. I loved hearing about Ryan's approach to learning and relating to people. Some of my key takeaways from our conversation are: one, Ryan reminds us that we all have individual and collective purposes. If we look into that, it oftentimes involves connecting to those around us. Two, Ryan oftentimes started a new endeavor by following his curiosity to new opportunities, and then using his analytical skills to figure it out, and his emotional intelligence to develop the relationship with a customer. Such a powerful combination. And three, I also feel that Ryan leads with serving others and looks for areas of need. You can hear how he always is trying to find new ways to be of service and delight those around him with his work. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I have more great interviews of analytical creatives that I will be releasing on a weekly basis. If you have a topic you would like me to talk about, you can email me at theanalyticalcreativepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at the underscore analytical underscore creative. I also want to give a credit to singer-songwriter Tiana V for creating my fun and upbeat podcast theme. Go find her on Facebook and Instagram at Tiana V Music.